Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Today on Switched On, I speak with Takahiro Kawahara and Ulame Ezekiel, who were part of the team that wrote State of the Global Minigrids Market Report 2020. This report is a Minigrids partnership report, and it was published by Bloomberg NEF and Sustainable Energy for All. The aim of the report was to raise awareness around mini-grids and to mobilize investments in the mini-grid sector as well as to serve as a benchmark to measure progress. In the process of writing the report, they interviewed 68 organizations, and they also included six detailed case studies. The case studies were for Uganda, Tanzania, Nigeria, India, the Philippines, and Indonesia. You can see the full report and the data under the publications section at seforall.org. That's S-E-F-O-R-A-L-L dot org. And there you will find State of the Global Minigrids Market Report 2020. Additionally, it can be found at BNF Go on the Bloomberg Terminal and at BNF.com or on BNEF's mobile app. Quick reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear our full disclaimer at the end of the show. I am Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Now let's hear from Take and Ulame about mini-grids. Hi, Take. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Dana. We'll actually hear you. I guess we, we can't even see each other now, but nice to hear you. And Ulame, <laughs> nice to have you on the show as well. Nice to be on the show, Dana. So we are going to be talking today about global mini-grids and the state of the mini-grid market. So let's start at the very beginning. Take, what is a mini-grid? So mini-grid is like a small independent power system. It can be either isolated completely from the main grid or it can be connected to the grid. To make it more context, it is a group of interconnected distributed energy resources with load or with loads within clearly defined electrical boundaries. And then these distributed energy resources can be very different kind of technologies. But typically, the modern mini-grids combine solar energy storage and diesel generators, um, but they all work as a single entity. And typically in the emerging markets, this mini-grid is used for energy access in the remote areas where there's completely off-grid. However, it is also can be connected to the main grid. So for example, when the main grid system has some troubles, um, the main grid control system can give order to the mini-grid to disconnect from the main grid, and the mini-grid can continue to operate and supply electricity to the customers. So sometimes it connects into the main grid, sometimes it doesn't, but it could, in theory, operate completely autonomously. That's kind of the differentiator from my understanding. And you mentioned solar storage and diesel generation. Tell me a little bit quickly about the storage element. So what are we talking about with storage? Is it the lithium-ion batteries that we're familiar with in cars, or is it a different type of battery technology that we're calling upon? Yeah, that's a good question. So it really depends on market, but in typically in the margin market, which is our main focus in this research is lead-acid batteries because the biggest reason is because still cheap and then available in many of the 
African countries or emerging Asian countries. However, if you look at the high-income countries such as, such as the US or Australia, lithium-ion batteries are taking more share. And then we can see gradual uptake of lithium-ion batteries in emerging markets uh, to be integrated into the mini-grid as well. So those who listen to this show, Switched On, usually focuses on a research report that we did. Now, this this is a really big one. So it's a, it's a long, in-depth, global research report. Tell us a little bit more about what our mini-grid research for this report was focused on. So the main focus is very comprehensive topics to be covered about mini-grids. But uh, the essential purpose is to understand what's the latest status of the mini-grid for energy access in emerging markets, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, and island nations. And then the reason why I said comprehensive is because um, there is a lack of information and a clear understanding of, of what is happening, not only just in terms of market trends, but also the business models, financing, policy regulations and impacts, and also technologies. And I mean to cover those areas in the research um, hence, I said it's comprehensive. Now, I know that this piece of research from our standpoint, you know, we we tend to be very engaged with the research that we do. And I, I don't think I've spoken to anybody who works at BNF who isn't excited about the projects they get a, they, they end up doing. However, I think every now and then we get something that we feel like is truly meaningful. And I think doing a project with Sustainable Energy for All is for us, a, you know, a great honor. And I think this is where I kind of want to take it with, you know, when you guys were given the opportunity to work from this, and maybe we'll pivot to you, Ulame, just because we haven't heard from you yet on the show today. You know, what about this project did you personally find really engaging? And, you know, maybe why were you excited to work on this project? So I originate from the south of Nigeria, um, River State, to be specific. Uh, that's also known as the South South or in the Niger Delta region. And when traveling back home, I see energy poverty every day and the lack of stable, stable power seriously affects people's lives. And where the grid is available, consumers experience frequent power cuts ranging from as, as much as four to 15 hours per day. Now think about it, that's four to 15 hours of no light at random points during the day, right? It's hard to get anything done like that. I mean, almost everyone relies on their own gasoline or diesel generator, if they can afford that, of course, um, that's how bad the grid is. I mean, almost every household has a switch outside their door where you can basically switch between grid power, so main grid power or your own generator. And that concept is actually unthinkable in the West, if you think about it. So to put things into con to context, in 2016 alone, actually, uh, Nigeria spent a whopping $16 billion to power these privately owned generators. And honestly, I really think mini grids or distributed, distributed energy systems in general, for example, um, rooftop PV, will solve this problem and provide localized regions with stable power instead of the country relying on one massive, unreliable national grid. And what is it that makes the national grid so unreliable and needing this distributed source so important? Nigeria's struggled with the grid for a long time. Nigeria has a population of some 200 million people. And in total, the install capacity is probably just over 13 gigawatts of power. And of that 13 gigawatts, 
they probably generate on average less than four gigawatt, gigawatts per year as an average generation. I mean, the grid is outdated. There's not enough capacity to go around. And of course, there's a lot of political issues as well. So I would say they're the basic problems, which is basically what's caused people to go to their own private generation. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And from a population standpoint, this is one of the fastest growing countries in the world. So in, in, you know, in reality, this is an important problem to fix pretty quickly um, because the demand is only going to be higher. So from a mini grid standpoint, we've established that we definitely think it's critically important um, and that there's an advantage here because really these diesel generators are serving almost like a mini grid for individual homes. So my question is, what is the role of diesel generation in the storage and mini grid market? Because you guys mentioned at the beginning, and I believe that was you, Take, you said that diesel generation still does have a role to play in the mini grid market. So conventionally, the mini grids are not very new, but conventionally, the many rural communities rely on only diesel mini grids or sometimes hydro mini grids, depending on the resources available. But the problem now is, I mean, if you if you have to purchase the diesel fuel to run diesel generators to provide electricity, it's expensive. And also it's environmentally harmful and then also not for good for health of neither. In the last 10 years, um, technology has become more cheaper, especially solar and battery storage. And also technologies such as control system to integrate and operate distributed energy resources as a single entity has become available. So many countries or developers have paid attention to switching um, those mini diesel mini grids to solar hybrid mini grids as it's cheaper in terms of cost of electricity and uh, it's less harmful environmentally. Um, but uh, diesel still makes a uh, important role because if you install just solar together with energy storage only, the system can be much bigger and then becomes expensive in terms of capex, the initial cost, because the mini grid still need to supply electricity to customers during the night when sun is not shining. So that diesel generator still plays a role to provide electricity even part of the 24 hours. But if you combine it with the solar hybrid systems, you could potentially reduce run hours of diesel generation, hence the cost of electricity and also the cost of diesel fuel would be reduced. So the diesel generation was almost being replaced by the storage rather than by the solar, so to speak, if, if we're thinking about it from a transition standpoint. So regarding mini grids in emerging markets, so Ulame, you'd pointed out that you know, having a diesel generator is almost unheard of. And I must say, you know, I, we've got one in my house in California, but that's only for when, you know, you have a massive earthquake and the power goes out, which uh, I will say some of that has to do with, well, also when I was a kid and we had rolling blackouts due to Enron. So that, that was a totally different story. And we've moved far, far beyond that. So you're right. Consistent power is something that we're used to and diesel generators aren't going to start popping up. So but these mini grids, this flexibility, this ability to you know, generate locally, store locally, and also not lose as much energy in the transmission distribution pro process has some benefits. 
do you see these mini grids and micro grids having the applicability in emerging economies only, or do you see them in other parts of the world? So for example, in California, where I grew up. So what I'd say, I mean, my focus clearly has been looking at sub-Saharan Africa. Personally, I'd say it's for emerging markets where the grid has been unreliable possibly for the past 10 or so years or even 20 odd years. For example, in Nigeria, having spoken to many of the stakeholders in the industry, be that developers or financiers, all of them seem to be really clear that they don't see the grid getting much better in the next five years. And that's similar for for many of the sub-Saharan African countries. So when we talk about emerging markets, I'll say that mini grids can potentially be the future of providing stable power in these emerging markets. Now, the reason why I say that is because I'll give you one good example, actually. So at one point I visited a mini grid in, uh, in again, in the South of Nigeria, um, next to Potakot to be specific. It wasn't a very big one. It was probably around 20 kilowatts or so. However, what you find is that the guys, it was a fully off-grid location, but one interesting thing there was that the, the community take ownership of the power. In, in a way, they provide security because when they get grid power, they can't control if it works or not. However, if you have the mini grid on site and everybody has their own community, it kind of cl- closes that gap. So I would say that that example sort of showed me that once you see stable power and you can operate your business or do the standard things that you need to do, you would want to see more of those systems go up. So to, to summarize this, I'll see that clusters of mini grids can solve all the localized problems. If the grid improves in 10 years, fine. But in the next five years, I don't see that happening. And I think that mini grids are the way forward in these emerging markets. Let's talk a little bit more about the financing because you you quickly touched upon that. You know, the demand is there for people who want access to electricity. The need for them to have reliable, consistent, you know, no no 15-hour blackouts is definitely there as well. But from a financing standpoint, who are building these projects and kind of what are their big economic gains or are they largely, you know, organizations like the World Bank and the IMF that are going in and doing the projects for, you know, another purpose as well? During the report, we looked at, so we had 14 funders in the mini-grid funders group. And essentially they approved a total of say $2 billion by the end of February, 2020. However, only 13% had actually been dispersed into the mini-grid sector. Let that sink in, 13%, which is a low number of $2 billion, right? And most of those funds were directed to African countries. Now, while the picture on the ground is likely to be better than the data suggests, it's clear that there can be significant delays in getting funding and therefore in projects basically moving forward, right? So that's on the financing side. And then, I mean, there are some possible reasons behind why that there's such a low disbursement rate. Again, I repeat that 13% of $2 billion. And for example, one, complex and lengthy procurement processes in governments. Two, the mini-grid market is not mature enough, meaning there's a lack of potential fund, fund receivers, i.e. developers in the market. And three, policy reform. To make the mini-grid market to be, i say, more friendly with project development, and funding timelines just don't sync, I guess, with the policy. So policy is probably critically important to get this off the ground, as you point out. So which countries are kind of doing the best at adopting this? I'd say Nigeria. Now, it's not because I did this case study. So 
just I was gonna say you're really happy. <laughs> this is the one you know the most about. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Just just to be clear, look, I worked on the financing section, the economic section, and the Nigeria case study. But when you ask me that question, which country is doing the best, this is actually industry would agree with me, it will be Nigeria. It's I would say it's a country that has made the mini grid market conditions friendlier towards project development and investment more so than others. And basically in 2017, the Nigerian government introduced a robust mini grid regulation, which includes clear grid arrival rules. So it sets up three options for mini grid developers for when the main grid reaches their mini grid asset, because one problem developers have always had is, okay, you say that the grid may not improve in five years, but what about if it improves in 10 years, right? Then you've got to say, okay, therefore, if I invest money into a mini grid, what's going to happen when the, I don't know, the distribution company, the national distribution company decides to extend my grid to my local community? And then I would say that the mini grid regulation in Nigeria covers this because one, they provide a clear compensation schedule. So they say, you get 12 months of revenue plus a depreciated asset value should the national grid take over. Two, developers can export their mini grid electricity to the grid. Their mini grid gets recognized as the main grid system. And three, operating the mini grid in parallel to the main grid is another option. So another point why I say Nigeria is the government has developed the largest results-based financing mechanism under what's called the Nigeria electrification project, also known as the NEP or NEP. Now the total amount of the budget to support solar mini grids under this program is $220 million, which comes from the World Bank and the African Development Bank. Now results-based financing is very interesting. And as I said, we feel like it's the future. Results-based financing is where the host government agrees to pay a per connection grant to developers once they can prove a mini grid is operational and provides reliable power to end users. So in summary, I would say results-based financing is an excellent way of ensuring developers complete their end of the deal before they get the grant from the government. And again, keeping all parties happy, right? Because the end user gets stable power. But that's taking on an awful lot of risk on the part of the person building the project to begin with. How easy is it for them to get a hold of the financing at the end? And how are they able to get the loans to start the project to begin with? This is where we think results-based financing essentially closes the viability gap. So if you can get a guarantee from the government that you are going to be paid X amount of, like X percentage of your capex, say six months after, once your projects go online and you can prove that they're operational, it's great, right? Because then you can go to the lenders, the commercial banks, which actually we have spoken to quite a few commercial lenders that said they really feel that our um, results-based financing will close this viability gap. So once the results-based financier sees that actually you have this agreement from the government to, to basically cover your capex, or to cover a portion of your capex once you've completed the project. So it is a grant, it's cash. You're not going to have to pay this money back. Remember that. So it's different financing, it's a grant. What really makes sense here is that the commercial financier will say, okay, since you've got this guarantee from the government, we can therefore lend you 
the money for you to carry out construction. So once construction's complete, you know you're gonna you're going to be paid within six months, right? The I don't know whatever percentage could be twenty percent, thirty percent, potentially fifty percent, depending on what the agreement is with the government. You will be paid for each of those connections, and you can therefore pay back the lender, right? So it just makes the viability of the project far more promising with results-based financing, and it gives some sort of guarantee to commercial lenders too. So this is a bit of a path forward that other countries can definitely learn from. You mentioned previously, and and maybe let's pivot over back to you, Take. Uh, we were saying that you know Nigeria, that a lot of people are saying that over the next five years, they're not anticipating that the state grid is actually going to expand. I don't know if that's the, the right way to phrase it, but that this mini grid market is a really good place to look. So let's look farther beyond the next five years. How about the next 10 years? What do you see the outlook for mini grids in the next 10 years, not just in Nigeria, but globally, the island nations as well, and the other places that you also looked at in this report? I think the globally, I think the more governments, we expect that the more governments are realizing that distributed energy technologies, including mini grids and the solar home system, could play more roles for energy access purpose. Because, I mean, the one issue in this sector is a lot of governments conventionally thought that grid extension is the best way to supply electricity in a reliable way. However, there are two problems. One is the it's very expensive in terms of building uh, such infrastructure. And also, secondly, in terms of the cost per electricity on a kilowatt hour basis, it's difficult for rural customers to pay for the electricity because it, it, it is high cost compared to other distributed energy resources, such as mini grids and solar home systems. What are we talking about in terms of cost? Like how much more expensive is it? Yeah, we have it actually. So Ulimi has, Ulimi did the economic analysis and then calculated the cost of electricity for different technology configurations. If you use a solar hybrid mini grids, um, the cost of electricity in a kilowatt hour basis can be between $0.50 cents and $1 per kilowatt hour. But uh, if you use, let's say, just diesel generators, in the same scenario, it could be more than, it could be more than double that, uh, simply because um, the community uses a lot of diesel fuels, which is costly. Do we foresee a situation where mini-grids cost competitive compared to um, diesel, I think is what you're saying, correct? Exactly. So do we foresee a situation where mini grids, which are cost competitive compared to diesel, but not really when compared to some of these, you know, well-developed, established, large infrastructure grids, like the one I'm recording this podcast on now, um, do, do we foresee a situation where they become price competitive close to parity, or is it always just going to be more expensive given the level of complexity? So I think that the, the economics of the mini grids or micro is quite complex, um, depending on uh, where it is. So if, if I talk about emerging markets, it's definitely cheaper in terms of cost per kilowatt hour basis. Uh, but the problem is still it's electricity cost is expensive from the customer's perspective. That's why public funding is always very important to make projects possible. But in the context of the, the countries such as the US or Australia, it's a different story there. It's not only just cost comparison between mini grids or micro grids and the grid existing. It's also about 
the value you get from reliability or toxicity. One of the big reasons why some developers are installing microgrids or mini-grids in the U.S. is resiliency improvement. Because there are, in some state, there is a potential risk of the grid electricity is cut down due to the hurricanes or sometimes wildfires. So combination of those different reasons, resiliency and the cost, some developers, some customers decide to install such microgrids. So Take, you, you've taken a look into the future for us. Ulume, what is your view on the next 10 years for mini-grids, microgrids? So what I'd say is to scale the mini-grid market, it is important to have these two things, right? So one, it's important to have subsidies as mini-grid projects do have a high risk as Take mentioned earlier, and results-based financing is the favorable subsidy as it's straightforward, as we also explained. And again, as it also ensures that the work gets done, right? You don't want to give out grants and then all of a sudden nothing's getting done. Number two, now being able to get project financing. So this is something we haven't touched on yet, actually. So being able to get project financing for a portfolio of mini-grid projects, as opposed to a single project, because a single project is too small to attract project financing. So we think that the future business model will be, I'm a developer, I own say 10 or 20, or even 50, or potentially 100 mini grids under an SPV, a special purpose vehicle. And each of those mini grids have a predictable revenue stream. What is project financing? Project financing is being able to lend on predictable future cash flows. So if I can predict the revenue of each of those, say, 50 projects, mini grids, I can then go to a commercial financier and he can lend me money based on that future cash flow. So we think that you need to have results-based financing on each of those assets, as well as project financing to be able to scale the sector up, right? Because if you think about it, utility scale projects are usually financed with project financing because you can just carry out bigger deals, but no one's going to do project financing on say a 50 kilowatt project. You're looking at megawatts plus projects to get project financing. And the other thing is there has to be an availability of public funding. That's very important to attract commercial investors. And finally, back to the Nigeria point, if Nigeria's performance-based grants work, which the World Bank and African Development Bank are implementing now, there could be more results-based financing programs in the next 10 years based on what's happening in Nigeria now. So Nigeria in a way is leading. So you see a pretty bright future. It's just there's a lot of criteria that need to be met. Maybe take some notes if you're listening and you're thinking about doing these sorts of projects. We've got, we've got some things that can help you out. So when launching into this report, I think people always, when they start to research, research something, they have a few assumptions and let's maybe, you know, play a little bit of fact tennis here. Uh, was there one factor finding each of you guys had uh, to close us out today that you found particularly interesting when doing this project? I found one interesting thing is the, the large major energy companies or oil majors and trading houses are participating in this mini-grid market as a financiers. So for example, Shell, Total, they both invest in some very experienced mini-grid developers who are developing projects in Africa. And also the Japanese trading houses such as Mitsubishi, Mitsui, recently Itochu, they all, they all invest in mini-grid developers as well. So of course, still 
public financier's role is very important to support mini grids. But with the variability of public funding, we have seen more big co- private corporates are participating in this sector, which is very a positive news and important to push the sector forward. Okay, Ulame, how about you? So for me, it was basically one I mentioned earlier. It was the fact that from the mini grid funders group, a total of $2 billion were dispersed as, as of February 2020. But the fact that only 13% of that funding had actually been, were committed, but only 13% were dispersed. So that's a really low number. And a lot needs to be, I mean, it could be the data again, but that needs to improve, should I say. Or to put it another way, there's money to be spent. There is definitely money to be spent. And the other point I had was that the fact that it's really obvious that solar, solar hybrid mini grids, based on the, like the OCOE numbers that Take quoted earlier, it's, it's just cheaper to add solar rather than just having the diesel generator and having that run in 24 hours a day or whatever. It's just cheaper. And the final point is that I found it really interesting how results-based financing, and I keep pushing this point because honestly, the financiers really, the commercial funders, financiers really want to make it clear that they need to see this. Results-based financing is just like magic in a way because it just solves many problems. It solves the problem of people being awarded a contract and potentially taking the money by not doing the work. Whereas results-based financing doesn't allow for that. It basically says that, look, I'm going to guarantee you this. I'm a host government. I'm, I've got sovereign guarantees here, whatever. I will give you this money, but you need to prove that your system is providing stable power. So it's really powerful because one issue that you found in sub-Saharan African countries is that you may get someone awarded a contract. It could be to build a bridge, but then some of that contract money doesn't get, the funds don't always get used appropriately. And results-based financing fixes this. It makes developers work hard, gives the end user something to be happy about. And then it gives the government some guarantee that these guys I'm giving the money to is going to be used. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So we've talked a lot about like the opportunities and solutions as we see them. And I think that's, it's always very constructive to think about how we're going to get things done. But um, let's acknowledge some of the challenges that exist. So Take, you know, you have a few, I think, that immediately come to mind when we were prepping for this. So what are some of the biggest barriers that you see? I think that this is a common challenge for the mini-grid sector. So we already, we already talked that um, technology is already available, the cost of solar battery storage got cheaper. However, um, the reason why many public organizations such as development, development financing institutions and donor agencies are involved are because of the challenge. So, so the first challenge is there's a lack of regulation that 
protect cash flows of the migrants. Some people say that as clear rules of the main grid arrival on many grids, which means that if the main grid reaches the main grid, what would happen to the asset? So the developers are always concerned that if there's no clear, clear grid rule, uh, the main grid assets cannot be compensated by the state-owned utilities, or they may, they may have the lower uh, tariffs uh, from the state utility. Unfortunately, at the moment, um, there is just more than 10 uh, countries we have studied have such clear rules, including uh, Nigeria. The second reason is customers. So the, the dominant customers for the mini grids are rural households who typically rely on agriculture. And then income is typically limited or sometimes unpredictable, depending on the weather conditions that affect agricultural productivity. By that, it's sometimes difficult for mini-grid customers to pay for the electricity from solar hybrid mini-grids, even though the, the cost of the mini-grid is still competitive against other alternatives. That's second reason. Yeah, the second reason, just to delve into that a little bit more, not only is it going to be difficult for them to pay, but my question is, how do they go about even requesting this access? How do some of these governments go about actually trying to find out who wants these sorts of projects and is most engaged and interested and, and supportive of them? So essentially, many customers won't have reliable electricity, but the way the way to find out where they develop the migrants is different by a organization. But typically government, if the governments think that mini grids is very important technology to provide electricity, um, sometimes they they do the uh, investigations and then uh, list up the candidates. For example, the case of Nigeria, uh, initially the government selected 2,000 uh, candidate sites and then uh, after that they listed up 20, 250. But also the private companies, some private companies do that. For example, it's identification of the potential mini-grid site is the work that many developers do. Uh, so they sometimes use the satellite images to identify the concentrated communities with uh, commercial industrial customers. Often the case, they also visit the uh, candidate communities to check the feasibility of the mini-grid projects. So there are different ways. Point three is a typical size of mini-grids is very small. So in the countries like the United States, the microgrid or mini-grid project is typically more than one megawatt, which is huge. And But in the African case for uh, mini-grids for rural communities, it's typically less than 50 kilowatt. So from the investor's point of view, if you invest a good single 50 kilowatt solar hybrid mini-grids, um, the return can be very limited. So unless you have a portfolio of many, many projects, it's not very attractive for invest from the investment perspective. So that's why um, making portfolio is another important thing um, to make the investment uh, workable. So Take, Olame, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us.
Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.